Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara is then Raven Professor of Holocaust Studies. I'm excited to introduce our special guest for today's episode. Adam Strom is the director of Reimagining Migration in Boston and the former director of Scholarship and Innovation at Facing History in Ourselves, one of my go-to digital resources for teaching about the Holocaust and human rights. He authored, edited, and produced numerous publications, including Stories of Identity, Religion, Migration, and Belonging in a Changing World, and Crimes Against Humanity and Civilization, The Genocide of the Armenians, among other publications. Throughout his career, Mr. Strom has connected the academy to classrooms and the community by using the latest scholarship to encourage learning about identity, bias, belonging, history, and the challenges and opportunities of civic engagement in our globalized world. The resources developed under his direction have been used in tens of thousands of classrooms and experienced by millions of students around the world. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you here with us today. Hi, so thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Same here. Wonderful to be here again. So when we met a couple of years ago in 2016 at the Holocaust Education Foundation's Lessons and Legacy Conference, you were with Facing History in Ourselves. And so why don't we actually start there and you tell us a little bit about your your involvement with Facing History and what was your role there over the many years that you were with that organization? I did a lot of things there. I, I, start, I, I started as a program assistant at Facing History, but actually the very first thing I did uh, when I was there part-time was help organize an exhibition of student artwork uh, and that we later displayed at St. John the Divine Cathedral in New York. Um, but, you know, o- over time, as a, after working with teachers for a very long time, I, uh, I, I was asked after 9-11, after the September 11th terrorist attacks, to help the organization think about how it could be more responsive in creating content in in real time. So mm-hmm. I um, I was asked to kind of help think about the contemporary bridge from its deep work on the Holocaust mm-hmm. to, uh, to to the world today. And so I I I, I developed this you know a series of online study guides and lesson plans and resources. And over time, got very interested in, in um, how do you make a bridge to uh, to other communities that might be feeling vulnerable. Right. Uh, where we believe that the history of the Holocaust would be important for them to know, but they may not have felt like they were natural inroads. And then we also recognize that attitudes towards, you know, and particularly around around Muslim immigrants in Europe, they were feel, you know, Muslim immigrants were very vulnerable. And, uh, and, and yet, uh, teachers who taught material around the Holocaust actually found that actually kids would want to engage, but society added, societal attitudes made it hard for these kids to build a bridge between the history and their own lives. So some of my work the last couple of years was there. And it's actually, while doing that work, I became deeply, deeply interested in issues of human migration. 
Wow, that was a nice and neat little summary for all of our listeners. You just compacted a couple of years of intellectual curiosity and conquest all into like two and a half minutes. That is impressive. Well done. But you, you know, in between, if if I might jump in, you know, there's the other transformation that is occurring. So you're opening up a field that had, you know, in lots of ways been important for specific communities, but largely kind of more restricted because it was seen as unprecedented and unparalleled and therefore unique and, you know, not really conducive to comparisons. And you just talked about that. But then you also use always the word civic engagement. And so outside of Holocaust studies, it would probably be fair to say, and I remember that from my graduate school, civic engagement was not exactly what we were taught. Uh, we were like taught actually to stay away from that because it was seen as something that potentially would dilute or you know poison the kind of detachment and objectivity that we were you know allegedly you know embracing of sorts. So how is what, where did that come from? Why all of a sudden out of the out of the libraries and into the the society with something like civic engagement? That's you know. You slipped that in there, but that's the other kind of radical step of sorts, no? So, so I'll give that, yeah, yeah, it is a radical step. And to that, actually, I, I need to give my mother credit. My, my mother was a founding executive director of Facing History. And I think what, I think her entry point was important, actually, in this conversation, because her entry point was as a teacher, not as an academic. And yet, at the same time, she knew she had to get the history right and be in dialogue mm. and conversation with academics. So when you step back, so much of, I think, the the period before the Holocaust. If we look at if we look at Weimar Germany, and you look at uh, even really the early years of the Nazi period, you, you you think about how a democracy gets stripped away step by step, right? Mm -hmm. And you and you learn how fragile democracies are, right? And and you and you, you know there these are things that we talk about being unprecedented, but they're only unprecedented after accumulated decisions and, and no decisions over so much time. So if we can move our gaze a little bit earlier, what starts to scream out to people is that our communities are really fragile and our communities are very vulnerable. And that what good is our knowledge if we're not able to start to think about putting that into action? And then moreover, when you start to teach this history well and you realize that you're not just teaching it to tell the story of horror, but you're teaching it to actually map how a democracy becomes a dictatorship in a genocidal society. Mm -hmm. Slow that stuff down for young people. They do things that scholars don't like very much. They see themselves in that history. <laughs> right? Scholars don't like that. That's not good, but that's what teachers want. And it's not that they're saying it's the same, but when people learn history, right, all the, how can you help but learn history by putting it in the context of what you already know. And mm -hmm. so it, as kids are starting to make those connections, I think it's our job to help them make sharp connections and real connections and careful ones. But it's sort of what they're naturally doing. And I think sometimes we forget that and we almost like beat the human instincts out of learners. Very interesting. Let me just, in the, just follow up on this one more time in a different way. It, would you agree that that shift, though, is, is again, in a way, splitting the difference between the optimism of the 1990s 
and the despair of the beginning of the 21st century that has sensitized us to seeing actually not just the the you know the frailty of the Weimar Republic and and kind of its you know doom of sorts but has made us more sensitive to it because we start to understand that our own communities and institutions are far from being eternal and and are more subject to 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 challenges and and battle and and therefore need our attention of sorts and it's interesting what i what i would say is facing history has been doing what it's been doing for over 40 years now and and the content has changed and i hope mm -hmm. i added to that but um in in layered but but pedagogically that was always what we were up to i think that there was a long time in which people would push back against an approach like that but i think you're right i think that we people are recognizing our fragility and as we've reject understood our fragility first i think you know it's a couple things that happened in in the 21st century i think 9 11 threw people for a loop mm -hmm. then i think the recession threw people for another loop and 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 I and I think that you know the the visibility of global migration has thrown people in in, a, in another loop, and I think that we're people are still ready now to start to think about changing the way that we approach the teaching of this stuff. It's we're we're not trying to build monuments; we're trying to build educated, active young people who are out to make a difference. That's fantastic. And is this um, sort of the the transition between facing histories to this new organization, reimagining migration? Is that well, that for, came about? For me, I I realized that first of all, there are a billion people on the moon, right? I mean, that's that's kind of amazing when when, when you think about it. And you know, so a quarter of the kids in U.S. schools are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And we know it's much higher in a, in a lot of communities. And yet they're looked at as if only kind of through this lens of language learners in schools. Mm. But actually, these are kids who actually understand a lot about the world, right? And their story is a story that has been echoed across time and place, but there hadn't there hasn't really been a deep thinking about what, how we should be teaching these stories of migration. It, they, migration becomes like, oh, it's something a language, uh, the English language learner kids are gonna tell their story and their parents are gonna come. And that's beautiful and wonderful, but it becomes just for the immigrant kids. And then if you look at like social studies curriculum, you're supposed to teach this, you know, like you teach the stories of people going west, and then you don't really talk much about what happens to the American Indian population. And then you talk about, you know, immigration and part of the industrialization of the United States. But mm -hmm. actually the story of migration is the story about who we are, who our communities are, who we feel like can be allowed to be like us or not. I mean, it, migration has been happening for so long that we actually forget that the distinctions that we make between stories and people moving across borders or between borders, that that wasn't what was at stake for most of human history when people are moving. So, uh, so I felt like it was time for us to pay deep, deep attention to this story mm -hmm. because it's our through line. I actually think migration is an incredibly optimistic story that's been politicized and turned mm -hmm. into historically again and again stories of fear mongering. So. I guess the other thing I would say, what, what are things that 
I, I realized after doing a lot of work on Holocaust education, people are terrified of change, right? Change, change freaks people out. I mean, I'm being sloppy in the way I, I talk about that, but intentionally so. And so demographic change is one of the things that scare people. We, we know there's a wonderful book in the early uh, 21st century called The Fear of Small Numbers. So mm -hmm. small numbers of people can have people turning against groups of people. And so I felt it was time to take some of what I had learned for years and pay very deep attention to issues of migration, both from a historical and a academic point of view, but also as we start to think about the social and emotional lives of schools and communities as well. Wow, that's fantastic. Thank you, Adam. I mean, obviously, you will not going to disagree with you. <laughs> you know, we, we absolutely. Well, you can. You we, can. No, we are, you know, but, but, I mean, Kinwa like say yes, but the problem is not migration, but the extent to which globalization has resulted in the displacement of certain populations and their sources of income and their social status. And it, the problem is how the one gets mapped onto the other, but you can't really deal with the one. If you want to deal with the issue in our societies, then you can't really separate them out and can just talk about the migration being a core aspect of humanity's experience over thousands of years yes but not always in the ways in which it interacted with economic strife and displacement what would you say to that um, well first of all the particular the particularity always matters right the story of migration isn't just a story about moving it's also the story about reception right and what 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 influences people to move and how people receive those those are those are the, the details really, really matter. That said, I, I do think that let me speak for the let me speak for the 19th and 20th century in the United States, that I that I think that you can you can recognize some through lines here in terms of the way that uh, and I'm now I'm speaking about immigration, but the the, the way that immigrant groups are, are have been received and the stories that we tell about immigration and immigrant groups, and those patterns are awfully familiar. And they, they, uh, they, the groups change names, but but the attitudes towards them don't change very much. And and actually, the tension between labor and newcomers is a it's an old story. You know, the, I'm I'm speaking to you from Boston, Massachusetts. So, so the know nothings people forget, which were this anti-immigrant political movement, among other things, they they actually were for the abolition of slavery. <laughs> so, you know, so people pit labor, working people against each other for a very, very, very long, long time, actually. The, I've, I've been looking at the Bracero movement, right, to bringing in Mexican workers. And so, and some of you celebrate the story of the Braceros, but the labor shortage that they were supposedly filling during World War I, if you talk to many African-Americans in farmland, they would have said there wasn't a labor shortage, we just wanted to get paid the same. Mm -hmm. as, as other people. So some of these tensions, it's true that the, the particularities of 21st century globalization are important, but that tension between labor and migration, it's actually a familiar one, the tensions between race and migration, the draft riots in New York during mm -hmm. the, the Civil War remind us that there's some echoes here across time. Very interesting. Um, let me just, you know, get to you like in one other way um document that's really close to you and i know you work on it, so. you're saying get to me I'm uh, no 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 i'm just uh, no i'm enjoying this um 
for the happily the government of the united states which gives begottery no sanction to persecution no system requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens and giving and so on and so forth you know what i'm quoting because you wrote obviously about it it's washington's letters uh, to the jewish community which looking back not too long ago i think had always been the kind of foundational text for a certain sense of an exceptionalism yeah. that jews jews in america in particular fared better uh, they never had to deal with these kind of medieval legacies of of anti-judaism and anti-semitism and so that in lots of ways you know was an anchor in 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 the kind of tradition of thinking about migration in particular jewish migration to the united states which document would you now think is is the one that would you know be more closer maybe to the ways in which we think now about this as an ebb and flow of of strife and, and conflict i i think that we have to embrace two narratives and i don't think only one will do so if we hold washington on one hand why don't we hold his friend ben franklin on the other mm -hmm. and ben franklin writes this letter in the middle of the 1750s and boy am i not going to get the exact language right but he's actually complaining about germans and so what franklin is doing is he's like you know these folks they're, <laughs> and they're never going to speak our language they're he complains about their complexion, which I think is very interesting when we think about ideas of whiteness and race. Right. He said these folks are they 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 can't change their habits any more than they can change their complexion. They're going to Germanize us, and we're not going to Anglicize them. So if we can put Ben Franklin in the 1750s next to you know George Washington, I think those are the dual narratives that we have to hold, mm -hmm. and we. We go back and forth and back and forth. Very interesting. Thank you. And so if we can talk a little bit more about the structure of the organization itself, what are some of the programmings or outreach educational um, workshops or things that you guys do in the Boston community? Or now, since we're in this virtual world, um, what are some of the events that are currently um, going on? So, so we've always been national, actually, from the, from oh, the very okay. beginning. We actually got founded out of the UCLA Graduate School of Education with okay. uh, really my, my, the co-founders of the organization, Corolla Suarez Orozco and her husband, Marcelo Suarez Orozco, are, um, first of all, they were like my, I had like big intellectual crushes on both of them. They're, just, <laughs> <laughs> they're brilliant. Uh, and so they were at UCLA and they're actually, uh, he, Marcelo is about to become the chancellor of UMass Boston. But uh, so we, that we have, we've had a tie there and a tie to Harvard's Graduate School of Education through Project Zero and mm -hmm. my colleague Veronica Boisman-Sia. So, so we've, so we are, I mean, I'll, I'll, the organization works two ways. One, we are really interested in deeply changing the educational conversation. Okay. So we're looking to partner with as big organizations that, that we can. So we're working with the Smithsonian uh, and their education department and, and their digital learning teams. Actually, we're putting together, it'll be ready by the fall, these uh, learning collections that are all tied to reimagining migration's teaching framework. So you'll be able to look at objects from across the Smithsonian Museum's collection. Wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited. The other like a big organization we've done a lot of work with is the AFT's Share My Lesson, the American Federation of Teachers Share My Lesson, which it, they, they have a wonderful platform to, uh, to speak to a lot of teachers. So there's, that's the big noise. 
with good <laughs> stuff but big noise. And then the other thing that we do is we run a fellowship program for uh, teachers who are really interested in working, and not teachers, but also just museum teachers and museum educators who are interested in working on these issues in depth. And so what they do is they apply for a fellowship and they come and we uh, introduce them to our framework in a week-long seminar, which I'm preparing for now. And mm -hmm. they go off and they begin to document and implement their work and then we start to share the best of what's going on. So I got one, one of my favorite projects is this teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I, I was sure she was going to create this great freshman year migration literature course. It's now mm -hmm. been adopted across the city of, uh, of Charlotte, you know, and it's all based on our framework. So it's really exciting to see how teachers take their creativity. And so we, we offer workshops and webinars, and I, I'm doing a lot of work with museums. I'm working with the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, did work with the Institute of Contemporary Art, and really trying to to leverage the uh, the energy behind uh, and the intellectual foundations of our work uh, wherever the hell we can. We want to work with you guys. No, wonderful. <laughs> I think that would be easy. You know, we're already all fans. <laughs> um, you know, would love to be, uh, be part of it in any shape or form. So, so um, you know, the so teacher out teacher outreach is huge. But, mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but I think we need to change the conversation because we need we know that teachers right now, teachers are nervous about teaching about these issues. Mm -hmm. Right. The election is coming up. We, we've heard from people that they're they're afraid of bringing up issues of migration. And it, and I think, again, it, what it does is it reveals this this kind of a fundamental mis understanding of these issues people think oh migration that's a current event without actually understanding our own history and how again this is a lesson that we can pull from my work previously mm -hmm. history, how how the past can become a window into the world that we're living in now La language arts teachers are big at, at metaphors right I, I know you were i remember you were you studied literature so la language arts teachers talk about windows and mirrors how a literature can become a window into a new world or a mirror in which you hold up to your mm. to yourself and understand yourself better i think it would be interesting for people who teach history and social studies to think about their their content in similar ways not to mm -hmm. give away the particular actually in ways to really honor that particular mm -hmm. but then to think seriously about what is it that exposing to the kids do and what does it say about their own lives well, you know, that's, you know, very much in, you know, if I, if I w would have been looking for a way to explain what we've been doing, you know, lately, Ackerman Center historically had been a program that, you know, single, had a single focus on the Holocaust. And then, however, the university grew so um, dramatically in the last 10 years, and then something that we doubled in size, and all of a sudden, we became one of the most diverse campuses. And all of a sudden we ended up with very diverse kids in class. And so when you then started teaching about the Holocaust, you know, like you said, they they took this elsewhere. I mean, Dr. Valente is, is a fine example of that tradition. She started writing a dissertation on um, Jewish survivors in Brazil, something that we hadn't really thought much about. So they changed their geography, they changed, you know, the focus. But they mm -hmm. also made comparisons between what they may have experienced elsewhere or their families or their communities. And so in lots of ways, you know, ever since 
you know, probably the last six, seven years, we've also kind of moved away, being still anchored in Holocaust studies because we are, after all, an academic center and, you know, there we have a certain expertise it, and resources. And then at the same time, they're opening it also up for these kind of comparisons, which, however, you know, make people very uneasy. And, you know, I think the last, you know, greatest unease that we had not too long ago was here when we talked about the comparisons with some of the camps in, in Texas at the border. Um, that became obviously a nationwide um, kind of conflict. But I think, you know, as far as the migration is concerned to come back, and this is, you know, Sarah and I discussed that last week a little bit on this same, you know, podcast here. So it's a question of identity. And so I think, you know, you gave us Franklin and Washington, and I think their respective positions also indicate a very different sense of identity. I mean, Franklin is, is threatened or potentially overwhelmed by the others. Mm -hmm. Washington doesn't even consider, the, you know, the identity of the people that he's addressing, but rather, you know, the respective equality that everyone has. And I think that's, I think, the big challenge, you know, that I see on the backside of the migration story, that we have to undo this us and them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to say about what you just said. And I think that I say undoing that us and them, I think, is part of the pedagogical trick that you're doing, too, I guess I, I would say, to connect those those two streams of thought, right? I mean, it's it's recognizing that that we can see us in the history of people we might have thought of as them or something untouchable. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's, that's a very that's a very powerful and complicated thing to do. I, I, I think that the debate about the camps that you all were part of was, I think, actually a productive conversation. And I, and I think it's where the historians were much better than the public conversation. The historians said, actually, there, there, there are actual places to make a comparison. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that this is the end of the story. This is saying that there are places within this history, which is, goes back to our conversation at the beginning, the earlier part of the story, actually raises some very complicated universal themes. It, I mean, you know, we could look at, you know, just doing the 1930s for a second, you know, that there's over a million people deported from Texas, Mexican-Americans that are deported from Texas. 60% of those folks are citizens. You know, that raises some very complicated questions about you, unique and particular. It's not, it's not the genocidal story. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated story about what does it say about a democracy that says it's okay to kick out its own citizens? And say, it, you, you know, know, it's interesting. We, we extended that a little while a bit, bit further by looking at uh, POW camps in Texas, in particular Germans who had, you know, been brought to Texas either as POWs or as enemy aliens from Latin America. And it, it creates these, these uncanny moments in the narratives that, the Dallasites recognize even in the German POWs, someone who's more like us versus those that come from Latin America. And so all the categories get a little bit blurred there. And so that made for quite an interesting reading um, with our students that, you know, they were very uncomfortable with the idea that all of a sudden these German soldiers were kind of praised for their punctuality and their work ethics. But, yeah, but we were fighting them, didn't we all the same? And so that became, you know, an interesting I, I wish I questioning. Was I, wish I, I would have learned a lot. Yeah, no, that was was really, really interesting. 
How do you deal with all of this? Is, is this a change now in being just remote and online and zooming and webbing and whatever else we're doing? <laughs> I mean, it all sounds like sports, but it actually involves <laughs> very little movement, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's, there's so many layers to that question. What, what, is about, what is about teaching hard history? And what does it mean to teach a hard history without being in a room together? Which I, which I, which I do think is difficult. Mm -hmm. and at the same time, I, I think the possibilities of connection are kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, Sarah was on a webinar that, that I did. There were 850 people signed up for that, Sarah. So oh, thank God, thank God all the 400 and something showed up live. <laughs> the, the, the rest of them, I'll see it later. But I, amazing that you were able to talk about these issues Mm -hmm. that, to that many people, and that we—I mean, I'm, just, I'm playing this through because I think it'll give you a sense of some of the dilemmas. So we had a technology fail on that morning. I think I may have said this yesterday that I thought I was going to pair people up and I was going to have them interview each other about their own migration stories with these questions that scholars had worked out, Corolla had wor worked out, and we were going to do this. And then they're like, we can't pair up that many people. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> they're like, that—that's not going to happen. And so what, what's great is a sense of experimentation. And mm -hmm. I think people are thinking about what are they comfortable trying? So I went and called a, one of the co-presenters co later, who I only really know virtually. And, and, but we're friends. You know, I know her through Twitter. And I tell you, she's my friend. And That's I, awesome. I said, will you interview me? And she's like, actually, I told her I want to interview her. And she's like, no. <laughs> so. So we think that, and I guess I'm saying this to say that the technology has an opportunity to bring people into deep engagement on really good ideas. It's got its limitations. You're not in the room together on some very complicated things that we need to be able to study. Mm -hmm. But, but there are opportunities here to take some of this stuff that's been floating around around digital learning and take it seriously now. I mean, I, you know, if you, in some ways. Telling people that you actually have to teach asynchronously means that people actually may actually start to do project-based learning and an inquiry more seriously because you can't just talk all the way through it. Exactly. No, and you know, and we've all at times you you know learned how to rely on the you know on the lecture gift, right? We yeah. can just go on and on and on. But I, I I'm there with you. I see also great opportunities. But what I do also think that. It's a big leap that we have to make, and I, you know, I can see that that's a challenge now for a university to make that. But I, I can even more appreciate that for the types of teachers that you earlier talked about, that you were trying to entice with many, much of your initiatives. That's really a tall order. I mean, to go from what they've done now into thinking about how they translate this onto a new platform while they're still having to teach face-to-face -face and online all at once. Um, and so and I think traumatize their students, yeah. the reach. So if you talk about it, do immigrants for a second, immigrant communities have been particularly hurt by coronavirus, you know, but, you know, particularly Latino communities in the U.S. So all of a sudden they're dealing with family issues, but you don't exactly understand what the family issue is because you haven't been in communication the same sort of way. and. And so teachers are also in the middle of teaching something and all of a sudden they're going to stop it, but then they got their kids at home. Right. Right. Where teachers are being asked to do 
I, I actually, I'm, I'm amazed at teachers. And I think they're being asked to do something that's impossible right now. That's a little bit, you know, I think that's where I was trying to go with this. Like for you or me, you know, it's a kind of, yes, the, you know, we're restricted, we're limited, but then yes, we can jump on all these great opportunities and learn a lot in the course and find that intellectually also quite stimulating, right? But yeah. for the teachers, this is a really tall order and, and, and that they have to jump through in such a compressed manner that I, I find in particular, again, considering the difficulty of our subject matters, that I'm, I'm a little you know, fearful of how, if at all, will they be able now to talk about either the, the history of hate, of, of genocides, of migration, or any of these complicated issues in this, you know, really enforced and compressed uh, moment where they have to do this all online without any great warning ahead of time, you know, or training. Yeah, to make the connection here, that I, I, think, um, I think that we need actually a really serious conversation and attention to teaching difficult histories virtually. Yeah. Right? Because what I'm watching is people are ready, that we are living in a world in which in a, the inequities of U.S. democracy have become exposed mm -hmm. and people recognize a need to take these issues on. And yet they're also in the same time doing just what, you know, Dr. Romer is saying, right? I mean, they're trying to do this in a way where they don't have the time to breathe, to reflect. They haven't, they haven't had the experience of, I, I think maybe the new question, a new pedagogical question isn't just about teaching history online, but mm -hmm. it's teaching the histories, uh, you know, whatever, whatever word wants to use. To, of loss, of trauma, yeah, of violence. Yeah, in, a, in an online space, because yeah. we're, we're gonna have to find new ways to read kids' social and emotional responses to this material. We already don't do as good a job by writing about this in face-to-face -face situations. Mm -hmm. No, it's very, you know, f challenging, even in traditional face-to-face -face moments when you teach, you know, perpetrators, Einsatzgruppen or something like that, you could kind of see the emotional turmoil in your student's face, but they're still in your class and you can kind of reassure them in ways that are more difficult, you know, to do in this online platform. Yes, absolutely. And so I think to conclude here, um, we could maybe ask one last question, which is, you know, so Adam, what is your hope for the future of Holocaust, human rights, migration, education, and all of these topics that you are really engaged with at um, Reimagining Migrations? Oh, what is my hope? My hope is that people see each other and other, each other's stories. People are given the space to listen to each other, because I think it's sometimes, if you don't have the space, it's easy to put up walls. Mm -hmm. So if we can just slow down a little bit. Like, so I remember when you sort of make a personal connection, I remember when you and I first met and you, you were talking about that you're doing, you know, Holocaust literature and testimony in, in Brazil. And I thought, well, that's unusual, but I bet if I read those stories, I would learn something. So how do we get somebody who may not realize that there's some knowledge that they don't have 
to slow down and listen to some knowledge that somebody else has. So I'll give you a sign of hope. So one of these exercises I told you about, pairing up and doing this interview, it's kind of amazing. We've created this little simple exercise protocol. And teachers, after doing it, come up to me and they're like, oh my god, I didn't know I had so much in common with this other teacher. The first time I did this, I did I paired up a teacher from Boston who is like fifth generation Irish American with a new uh, a new immigrant from somewhere in the Caribbean, I can't remember. But afterwards, they both grabbed me and they said, you paired us up on purpose because <laughs> our stories are so simple. <laughs> yeah, like, no, no, absolutely not. But what you all did was you listened to each other and we don't listen to each other very much. Hey, and, right? And so, so I'm not saying to be sloppy. I'm not saying to say it's all the same, but can we just listen and recognize that there might be something in stake in somebody else's story and that's a start oh that's wonderful thank you so much for being with us today it was really a pleasure speaking with you learning about uh, the organizations and we're so happy that we had this opportunity to be together thank you thank you thank you so much i enjoyed it take care wonderful thank you you too bye 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 thank you for listening to learn more about our guest in Reimagining Migration, please be sure to visit their website at reimagininmigration.org. You can also find us on our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on social media on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.